You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. Open God, God's holy word to the 34th Psalm. The 34th Psalm of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. I will bless Yahweh at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in Yahweh. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify Yahweh with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought Yahweh and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and Yahweh heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of Yahweh encamps around those who fear Him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that Yahweh is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Oh, fear Yahweh, you His saints, for those who fear Him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek Yahweh lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of Yahweh. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of Yahweh are toward the righteous and His ears toward their cry. The face of Yahweh is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, Yahweh hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Yahweh is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but Yahweh delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. Yahweh redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, you are mighty, you are mighty to save, you deliver, you redeem, you save your people. How richly we have tasted of your grace, your, your, your grace not only in making us new, regenerating, converting us, granting us faith and repentance, justifying us. We've tasted of that mighty deliverance, but we've tasted of all your goodness that flows from that. We've known your grace and your deliverance and your, your goodness, your, your sure and faithful promises to us, experiencing the reality again and again, and we have failed, Father, 
to express praise and thanks. We can never do so adequately. So Father, we ask for mercy and forgiveness and grace. That we might exclaim and praise and extol and uplift and magnify you as you deserve. Send your spirit here. Bless the preaching of your word. Open our eyes to see something of your glory so that we cannot but praise you. And having done so, may may our longing be so strong that we know that our voice alone is not enough. We would want others to join the chorus. And may we go forth then from this place with faces radiant to tell others of our God. And may your grace be upon us as you do so so that they come to taste and see that the Lord is good. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Perhaps the most immediately striking thing about Psalm 34 to the ancient writers completely lost upon us as we, we begin to look at it. And that's that it is an acrostic psalm. Each of its 22 verses begin consecutively, uh, sequentially with one of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. It's one of only eight acrostic psalms that we find in the Psalter. Four of those eight are in book one of the Psalms. Book one is Psalms 1 through 42. So four of the eight are in the first book. The other four, symmetrically, are in the final book of the Psalms, book five of the Psalms, which is Psalms 107 through 150. These are also the two largest books of Psalms, 42 and 44 Psalms, respectively. Strikingly, this Psalm, Psalm 34, along with Psalm 37, function like a pair of brackets. In between there, we have what are referred to as the Psalms of the Innocent Sufferer. It's someone who is suffering, and the, the overall feel of the Psalms is they're, they're suffering as one who's innocent, uh, the enemies of God attacking them. Following Psalm 37, we have the Psalms of the Guilty Sufferer, uh, the one who's suffering, and there, there's some guilt involved. And then further, you have this, this set of brackets on 37, 40, 34 and 37. And on each side of those, we have what some have referred to as a quasi-acrostic psalm. They have 22 verses. So you've got these acrostic psalms, 34 and 37, each with 22 verses. They are acrostic. And it doesn't, it doesn't feel just, uh, just by accident that psalms on each side of them also have 22 verses. And all this to point out that these acrostic psalms are not only highly organized themselves, they also organized. They they organize. So these psalms are both organized and they organize. And this is to point out something that we'll, we'll begin to draw on more as we draw to the close of book one of the psalms. And that is that the psalms are not arranged and edited in the final order as you have them with these five books that you see referred to just haphazardly. There's reason and purpose and meaning to it. Now, as if this psalm didn't stand out enough for all of those reasons, it's also the fifth of only 14 psalms that we come across in the Psalter that give a specific setting. 
a specific reason why they were composed. Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. And this undeniably refers to the events of 1 Samuel chapter 21. David David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David, the, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David is his ten thousands. David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath, so he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. And Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Now, did you catch the seeming discrepancy there between Psalm 34 and 1 Samuel? Psalm 34, we have Abimelech. 1 Samuel 21, Achish, king of Gath. What gives? Well, Abimelech was the name of of a Philistine king that's spoken of earlier. And it's very likely that that was a kind of title name. The same way we would refer to Caesar. Abimelech does mean father is king. Or king is father. What's especially curious though about this is that David in using that name perhaps is meaning to bring into your mind a couple of other occasions whenever there was a Hebrew sojourning in exile that has an encounter with a king. A Philistine king who is named Abimelech. Same king in both of these other instances. And the exile Hebrew patriarch is afraid of the king. And he resorts to his own cunning and lies and deception to preserve his life. But his cunning and deception proved to be really of no effect in keeping his his life. The truth comes out. And what's shown to preserve their life through those instances is God's goodness, not their cunning. Abraham, before the king of Abimelech, lies about his wife and says she is his sister. The truth comes out. And David is, uh, 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 excuse me, Abraham is preserved. He's delivered, not by his cunning, but by God's graciousness. And then his son, Isaac, does the same thing. These all three Abraham, Isaac, David are men of faith. But they're not men of perfect faith. And even so, we see in all of their lives God's deliverance and goodness. This psalm opens up as a testimony to that goodness. That's what David is doing. It opens up with testimony and then it transitions just about halfway through to teaching. And the teaching is meant to move you to stand where David does so that you might testify with him. You'll find in his testimony, there is this invitation for you to join with him in praising. And then he transitions into teaching so that you can stand in the same place he does and testify as he does. David gives not just an invitation to praise here, he gives instruction to praise. 
David opens with this resolve. I will bless Yahweh at all times. He not only determines to praise God, he determines to praise God at all times. And remember the pickle that David has just been delivered out of. He's going to praise God at all times. And the reason for this is not that David thinks, I'm going to transcend in some kind of meditative state the illusions of this world and rise up to a higher plane and spiritually exist and praise God at all time. It isn't that David is transcending his circumstances or or counting them as nothing in that regard. He is trusting God, is what we see here, for deliverance. He knows that, as Paul put it, nothing, nothing can separate him from the love of God. He smiles at his circumstances and believes that his God is bigger than them. That's the reason for his praise. And you sense David's resolve further in all the synonymous terms he uses here. I will bless Yahweh. His praise shall be continually in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in Yahweh. Oh, magnify Yahweh with me. Let us exalt His name together. Bless, praise, boast, magnify, exalt. And all those synonymous terms really help you to figure out something of what it means as we read through the Psalms again and again and hear them exclaiming uh, that they will bless Yahweh. What does it mean to bless the Lord? When God blesses us, there's there's a kind of change in our state, in our being. We're better off than we were before. God gives, we receive. Blessing for us means blessing and, and blessedness if God blesses us. What does it mean whenever we, we say that of God, though? It means... To praise Him, to boast in Him, to magnify Him, to exalt Him. Whenever God blesses us, we're we're something more in a way. And it would be blasphemous to say whenever we bless God, we somehow return that favor. No, what happens whenever we bless God is we, we don't make Him more. We realize something of the inexhaustible expanse of who He is. John Piper explains, magnify has two distinct meanings. In relation to God, one is worship, one is wickedness. You can magnify like a telescope or like a microscope. When you magnify like a microscope, you make something tiny look bigger than it is. A dust mite can look like a monster. Pretending to magnify God like that is wickedness. But when you magnify like a telescope, you make something unimaginably great look like what it really is. I would, I would add this correction. You make it look something like what it really is. You're catching only a glimpse of a magnitude you can't even fathom. With the Hubble Space Telescope, pinprick galaxies in the sky are revealed for the billion star giants that they are. Magnifying God like that is worship. So, blessing God, think of that in the same, what that means, think of it in the same way as what it means for you to magnify God. You don't make Him bigger, you capture something of the eternity, the immensity, the transcendence, the glory, 
the holiness, the infinity of who He is. You just glimpse part of it. David wants to, in this resolve, do this continually at all times. And if you're reading this and you see this resolve, this kind of vow, this determination, and you think that is something beyond you, recognize you're not being humble in that. Humility would mean you've, true humility is that you've been captured by the greatness of God such that you no longer think about yourself in that capacity anymore. Yes, you recognize your smallness. But you're also so gripped by God that He's worthy of praise. And there becomes this kind of resolve and this kind of determination. Yes, you'll fail. But to not have this kind of resolve, this kind of determination in the face of a God so holy and excellent is the bigger failure and the bigger sin. You are commanded. Multiple times, as we saw recently in the book of Philippians alone, to rejoice in the Lord always. Yes, you will fail. But don't let that cause a kind of hesitation to make this determination and this resolve. I will bless Yahweh at all times. And David intends for others to enjoy, to, to join him in this praise. The Spirit of God through David, invites us to join David in this resolve to bless and to praise and to exalt and magnify and boast in God. Praise is by nature invitational. Praise goes out seeking to bring others in. Whenever a father praises a daughter, she's so lovely. Don't you automatically in that situation, even if you don't think, you know, that baby, yes, I'm sure she'll grow up and be beautiful, but it, it's a baby at that point, and, and not all of you know. And you sense the awkwardness because you know whenever he said, she's so lovely, it was a question, isn't she lovely? Praise is invitational, it goes out seeking to bring others in. C.S. Lewis addresses what he speaks of as the problem of praise. What he was getting at was the apparent problem that, that you, you can sense whenever you're looking at the Psalms and here God is demanding our praise. It, it, it seems selfish. And he addresses that on a number of lines. But one of them is this. The most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously urges, uh, spontaneously overflows into praise. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmist in telling everyone to praise God are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. 
My whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us as regards the supremely valuable, what we delight to do, what we indeed can't but help doing about everything else we value. Praise goes out seeking to draw others in. Praise is invitational. Praise is joy coming into full bloom, ready to pollinate. Praise is unselfish joy. Praise is not only joy shared, it's joy shared hoping for others to share in that very joy. What underlies David's praise and joy here that wants to bring others in is an experience of God's deliverance and redemption. An experience of the goodness of God. And so he gives testimony in verses 4 through 7. And in the same way that you saw this oscillation back and forth between David praising and then inviting others to praise in the first three verses, in this next set of verses, you're going to see an oscillation between uh, David giving testimony and then speaking truths which underlie that testimony. And this is a pattern that goes throughout the psalm. Like in each section, you'll see a back and forth kind of thing happening. So in this instance, it's, it's testimony, then truth. Verse 4, I sought Yahweh, and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. That's the first testimony. He sought Yahweh, Yahweh answered him, Yahweh delivered him. Well, it's critical, I think, when you examine this, is to recognize that David's seeking God wasn't like a treasure hunt. Too many seek God that way. They're seeking God directly. They're seeking God in some kind of mystical encounter. David knew where God was to be found. God had told him where he was, that he dwelt in the midst of his people in covenant by means of mediation of priest and sacrifice. If you're looking for God, He's told you where you may find Him. He's told you the only way in which you may approach Him, and that is through the rent body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Come in Christ and you have access to the Father. Come before God by mediation of the great high priest and the Lamb of God. Seek the Father in Christ and He will answer. This is a relational kind of seeking. It's the kind of seeking whenever you would hear one say that they sought the favor of the king. It's, it's not that they didn't know where the king was. They came and they bowed before him seeking his favor. The place where you may come before God is, if, is by kissing the son and bowing before Christ. And the truth that accompanies this testimony, verse 5, those who look to him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. You need to see the parallel here. Seeking is looking And being delivered is parallel to this radiant face. The reason why David is not ashamed and why his face is radiant is because he's been delivered and not left in this place of shame. And the reason he's not there is because he looked to Yahweh. He sought the Lord. The humble man will often, habitually, repeatedly, Bow his head before God in repentance and contrition and brokenness. But when he does so, seeking God's mercy in Christ, 
He is bowing, but he's looking. And the way you will recognize the truly humble man as you walk through life is not the one who has his head constantly bowed in shame, but the truly humble man who has looked to God is the one who walks with his face uplifted and radiant. Yes, he has his own convictions and fears and doubts. But because he is truly humble, he thinks less of his own words than he does of God's words of grace and mercy and forgiveness. And because he counts his God of higher value than he does himself, he walks with face radiant because he's experienced the deliverance and the mercy and the redemption of his God again and again every time he bows in prayer. It's not reason as he's truly bowed in repentance and confession. It's not reason for him to hang his dead down anymore, but he's freshly experienced the grace of God and he, he can walk forth radiant and rejoicing because he's tasted and seen that Yahweh is good. Saints, look up to your God in true faith, and you need never look down before men. The priest were to bless the people, saying, number six, Yahweh make His face to shine upon you, Yahweh lift up His countenance upon you. In Christ, the Father's face shines upon you. Moses came down from Sinai with face so radiant that it struck terror into the hearts of the people so that he veiled himself. And Paul tells us in Corinthians, we've beheld a greater glory. And he says that, that because of this greater glory, we're bold. We're not like Moses who veiled his face. But rather, he says, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So we look to our God and we look to our God in Christ. And in Christ we know we have redemption. And it's the afterglow of God's redemption with which we shine. Isaiah speaks of this this way. Isaiah 61 through 5, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of Yahweh has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But Yahweh will arise upon you, and His glory will be seen upon you. And the nations shall come to your light. This is the kind of testifying that's invitational that David is speaking of here. Having stood in the presence of the redemption that's come in Christ and seeing the mercy and goodness of God in Christ, with that reflecting, God using us as ambassadors of His reconciliation to draw others to Himself, He goes on. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your son shall come from afar and your daughter shall be carried on the hip. They shall, you, then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you and the wealth of the nation shall come to you. Church, as the redeemed of God, this should mean our continually looking to our God and experiencing His redemption and His grace and His mercy and His salvation 
as deliverance again and again so that we testify to this world with radiant faces, singing His praises, magnifying His name, longing for others to join with us. And the second testimony David gives is, it's the same one, it's just repeated in different terms. Verse 7, the angel of Yahweh encamps, uh, no, verse 6, excuse me. This poor man cried, and Yahweh heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. This poor man cried. Remember, David is in exile from his homeland. He has been pursued by the king that he has been so loyal to. He cries. Yahweh hears him, saves him out of all his troubles. And the second truth that underlies this, the angel of Yahweh encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Perhaps think of it this way. You remember that cherubim that was set in the garden with flaming sword to guard it so that none can enter the garden. Yahweh encamps around his people in such a way that he keeps them in. And he keeps the enemies of God out. Those who would attack the church do so to their own demise. It is the encampment of Yahweh. He will keep her. Or do you remember the pillar of cloud that led the Hebrew children out of Egypt toward the Red Sea? Then moving between them And the Egyptian forces coming to attack them. Yahweh dwelt in the midst of his people by that pillar of cloud and fire. Remember? I think it's the same imagery. He encamps in our midst. And when those who would attack draw near. He is Yahweh of hosts. He defends his people. David closes out the first half of this psalm. Transitions to the next section. With two further invitations. And then reasons going with those invitations in verses 8 through 10. The first invitation, taste and see that Yahweh is good. When David invites you to praise God, he does not do so the way a husband might invite you to praise his wife. Isn't she amazing? There will be a distance between the husband's appreciation and praise of his wife And the appreciation and praise that he's calling someone else to join in with him concerning her. Now David calls you to join him in praise. Something like you would uh, a pizza. This is amazing. Have a slice. There's... There's no distance to be felt here between what David is enjoying from God at this moment. In other Psalms, it's clear you're meant to think of David as the king. I think here, David doesn't have any of those kind of barriers in place. He's wanting you to fully participate and taste and see just as he has. Know this for yourself. David praises God because he's found God to be faithful. He's tasted of his deliverance and his salvation. The reason is, taste and see that Yahweh is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. 
What's the connection? Tasting is trusting. Trusting is taking refuge. Thomas Watson said, faith is the palate which tastes Christ. Faith is trusting. It causes the bread of life to nourish. You remember Jesus once said to the crowds, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. And He made clear what, what, what is tasting, what is drinking, what is eating, what is drinking. He made that clear earlier, telling them, I am the bread of life, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. So eating is coming. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Drinking is believing. Trusting, believing, coming, putting your faith in Christ. Those who do so will not be disappointed. They will radiate the second invitation is to fear Yahweh, you His saints. And the first invitation, you're invited to enjoy Yahweh. The second invitation, you're invited to revere, fear Yahweh. Rejoicing, revering. These two are not contrary. They're put right here side by side without any hesitation. Why should we fear Yahweh? You see, the same reason underlies it. Taste and see that He's good. Blesses a man who takes refuge in Him. Fear Yahweh, you His saints, for those who fear Him have no lack. Young lions may go weak and hungry. Young lions in their own strength will often lack, but the sheep of God who look to the Good Shepherd have no want. Seeking, crying out, fearing, tasting are all bound up in this singular act of trust and faith. And those who take refuge in God are characterized by both reverence and rejoicing. If your joy is void of fear, it's not true joy in Yahweh. If your joy is void of fear, it is very likely presumption. It's a lesser joy, a delusion. And if your fear is void of joy, that means it lacks faith. And it's not the kind of fear then that pleases God. Because without faith, it's impossible to please Him. Whatever is not of faith is sin, Paul tells us. Joy is the test of true fear. And fear is the test of true joy. And where one rises, it brings the other along with it. Taste and see that Yahweh is good. Fear Him, all you His saints. And having done so, you will leap at David's invitation. To praise God because you, like Him, can testify to the goodness of God. His praise will be continually in your mouth. And you will long not only to praise Him yourself, but you will long for others to join with you. To exalt Him, to magnify His name. Saints, do you long to extol and exalt and magnify your covenant Lord, your triune God, 
the Father who planned your redemption, the Son who accomplished your redemption, the Spirit who applies your redemption? Do you long to praise Him? Have you tasted and seen? Do you fear Him? If you do not, have you really cried out? Have you truly come? Do you really fear? Have you tasted? And if you say, yes, I do long to praise Him, is there not with that longing the desire for others to be brought into your joy? Not just to praise Him, but to praise Him publicly for that praise to go out and to bring others in. Let your praise be loud. Let it be public. Let it be heard. Tell others of God's grace and mercy and goodness and redemption and deliverance that are come in Christ. Tell Him that they, if, they would, if they would bow before Him as Lord, trust Him and as Savior, He will hear their cry and He will save them. Invite the masses to taste and see that the Lord is good. If you know something of this, don't you long for the choir to swell? Have you ever felt that impulse in your chest? Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. And you recognize, I can't possibly possess a thousand tongues. My voice is not loud enough. I can never do this alone. My God is worthy of such glory and honor and praise. And I am utterly inadequate and insufficient to render unto Him what is His due. Oh, for a thousand tongues, I cannot have them. But oh, that the choir would swell, that others would join me. If you haven't had that kind of impulse in your praise, you just haven't seen the glory and beauty of the Lord as it truly is. Evangelism is a good test for how genuine and sincere and real our praise is. True praise goes out wanting to bring others in. Saints, let us go out into this world with our faces radiant, lifted high, shouting His praises, commending our Lord to the masses, inviting them to join with us in light of the salvation come to its greatest and fullest manifestation in Christ. Our God has shined upon us such that we have beheld the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so let us say, kiss the Son. Fear Him. Eat of His broken flesh. Drink of His poured out blood. Thirst no more. Hunger no more. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. And perhaps the reason we fail to do this outside of the church is because we so often fail to do it inside Saints, whenever we gather, it should be with the earnest desire to testify to the Lord's goodness. Let me tell you of how He's been good to me this week. We are commanded by Paul. Yes, our praise should be consumed with God, but we're commanded by Paul to edify one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. One of the greatest ways that you can encourage and uplift your brothers in this whenever you see that their faces are downcast and not radiant is to come with eager hearts to assemble with the saints as much as you possibly can and to sing His praises, to lift up your voices, to exalt and magnify your God and testify to His goodness afresh and anew. 
in an invitational kind of way with a radiant face and your brother sees that. I have not experienced the deliverance of my God this week. I am in a kind of darkness and he seems distant to me. But as I look at my brother, it reminds me his goodness is real. He does deliver his people. He is faithful to his promises. Put yourself forward as a witness and testify to his faithfulness in a way that invites others seeing your radiant face to taste and see that he is good. The second half of this psalm moves from testimony to teaching, from praise to wisdom, verses 11 through 22. And the clear link between these two sections is the fear of the Lord. And so in the previous one, you're told that those who fear him have no lack. You're invited, fear Yahweh. And then in verse 11, come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of Yahweh. And the implication then, the link between verses 12 and 13 and verse 11, is those, those who fear Him will know life, God's goodness. The teaching is so that they might too then testify. The teaching is, you fear Yahweh, and those who fear Yahweh have no lack. Lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek Yahweh lack no good thing. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see, see good? Well, fear Yahweh. To bless, praise, and magnify God, you need to be taught. You need wisdom. And it's not your tongue that needs the instruction. It's your soul. You need wisdom to join this choir. If you want to know God's salvation, His deliverance, His provision, His blessing, in this kind of intimate way that David's speaking of here, this is where you begin. The fear of God. The beginning of wisdom. First lesson. And you get a summary of list of what that fear means. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. This is just a summary list. And, and you understand, don't you, that the idea is fearing God means obedience to His law. Walking in His ways. In faith and trust and dependence. It means loving God, loving man. 1 Peter 3, 10-12 quotes this portion of Psalm 34. And it's really helpful in making plain and obvious what's right here for you to see. But it just makes it vividly clear, 1 Peter. 1 Peter 3, 8-17. Finally, all of you. Have unity of mind, sympathy, brother love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. You see how he's set? Do you see the setup to where he's ready to quote what we're examining in Psalm 34? Bless that you might receive a blessing. Walk in this way of the fear of Yahweh. Because it's the blessed way. For, so 
Peter's saying, let me, let me substantiate this. And he quotes now. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Then he asks, Peter does, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? His point is, if you live in God's way, it's the best way to live because this is God's world. He's written the rules. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Praise Him in an inviting way. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Several things that that passage makes clear. First, it makes clear that the kind of blessing that's being spoken of here for fearing Yahweh is not a blessedness. Don't think of it this way. This is, this is not a, a kind of thing that is for our salvation. This is a thing that is from our salvation. Peter makes that clear. This is not a working for our salvation. It's a working from our salvation. And second, living in obedience to God and the fear of the Lord does not mean exemption from suffering and affliction. It does mean, third, the idea is that living in obedience and fear of God means that you're living in the reality that is. There is a holy God before whom we live, and that living unto that God is the best possible way that you can live. Yes, it may mean opposition and persecution, and your God may ordain suffering that you might glorify His name, but in all of that, there is God's deliverance and mercy and redemption and grace to carry you through. God curses sin. His wrath is against the sinner. He chastises wayward sons, but His face shines upon those who look to Him. He hears their cry. He provides for them. Those who walk the path of, of obedience, those who walk in the fear of the Lord in, in faith and in trust, not in any kind of self-confidence, but in humility, those who walk that way walk in communion with their God. They taste and they see that He's good. His eyes, we're told, are toward the righteous. His ears are toward their cry. The contrast between the righteous and the wicked is now drawn out at length in verses 15 through 22. And the reason for the contrast is how God stands in relation to them. You see it in just verse 15. His eyes are toward the righteous. His ear ears toward their cry. So you get the, the, the imagery of His face being towards them in benevolence and goodness. The blessedness of Numbers chapter 6. The face of Yahweh is against those who do evil. The wicked have no reason to sing. The face of God Almighty, omnipotent, all-knowing, omniscient, is against them. No reason to sing. But the eyes of Yahweh are toward the righteous. 
He hears their cry. He delivers them. He's near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. Their afflictions are many, but their deliverance is certain. The saints are delivered out of affliction. The wicked we see are afflicted unto condemnation. The saints are are saved out of their afflictions. The wicked are afflicted unto their condemnation. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but Yahweh delivers him out of them all. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate righteousness will be condemned. How is it, though, that this line between the righteous and the wicked is made? It's clear in verse 22. Yahweh redeems the life of His servants. None of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. Now, immediately, this language of redemption has reference to what David's experienced in his life. His deliverance and salvation as he's walking in obedience to God. But the imagery has a deep well that David's drawing from here. This language of redeeming God's servants, those who take refuge in Him, not being condemned. This language of redemption has its roots in the Exodus. God's redeeming His people, purchasing them unto Himself as His servants out of Egypt. And the way we're told that He does so is by mighty acts of wonder, by this great exertion of force, as it were, metaphorically speaking. Not as though God exhausted Himself, but it takes this mighty act whereby God delivers Him. And the climactic act is that God slays the firstborn of all the land and the firstborn of Israel are not immune from this. But for them, He provides a lamb, a substitute. And He goes on in Exodus 13 to make it plain that by that lamb, He purchased them. He redeemed them. He ransomed them for Himself. And that's an expression of what He's doing for all of Israel. They are His because He's purchased them by the blood of the lamb. There's this peculiar detail concerning that Passover lamb. You're told both in Exodus 12, 46, Numbers 9, 12, that you shall not break any of its bones. Now listen to how John 19 quotes Psalm 34, 20. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. John 19, since it was the day of preparation. Preparation for what? The Passover. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, where the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you might also, may also believe. For these things took place, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. I think John's quotation makes it clear He is thinking of the Passover lamb, but he's not thinking of the instructions of the Passover lamb because he says not one of 
His bones will be broken. He's thinking of this psalm of David. And he's thinking of the one who fulfills it. He's thinking of the only truly perfect righteous man that has ever been. And saints, the good news, this is what makes the line. Is that that perfect righteous man prayed. And God heard his cry. And he was delivered on the third day and rose. And all who take refuge in Him, who trust in Him, taste and see that Yahweh is good. That's what makes the line between the righteous and the wicked. Christ alone is the perfect righteous man. And because God has heard His cry, He will hear yours if you cry out to Him in the name of Christ. And all those who God so redeems by the blood of the Lamb... He then brings to Mount Sinai that they might tremble and fear and walk in His ways. Walking in obedience and love of neighbor. And the kind of praise that's being spoken of specifically in this psalm is the kind of praise that comes after Sinai. The kind of praise that comes from walking, not perfectly, David was not walking perfectly in this instance. He played mad, he deceived, he lied, but mingled with that was trust. Those who walk along this path of faith and trust in fear of God, obeying His truths, walking in the fear of the Lord, those who walk this path of sanctification, walking and knowing the grace of God anew and afresh, Each and every day as as they're walking that path of obedience as an expression of trust and dependence upon Him. Those who walk that path are... they, They don't simply... It isn't simply that they tasted that the Lord is good and they're reflecting on that. They are tasting that He's good. They're experiencing His grace and His salvation as they walk the path. The only way they can walk that path is because they're walking in God's grace and mercy. It's not self-sufficiency. It's not self-dependence. It's humility. And it's a desire to to walk into into His glory and to His praise that they're walking that and experiencing that anew and afresh. Experiencing His deliverance and His goodness and His grace. Walking in communion with Him. It's then that they praise and extol Him. And they do so in this way with radiant faces that invites others in to participate in that. Having feasted on His love afresh. In this way, saints, we will never tire of praise. We will want to do so continually. And we'll want to do so invitationally. I will bless Yahweh at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast In Yahweh, let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify Yahweh with me and let us exalt His name together. Let's pray. Father, fill our mouths because You filled our hearts. Father, teach us the fear of the Lord. Teach us to revere You. And teach us to rejoice in You. Seeing something of your your power and your glory, may we fear and tremble. And, And sensing your grace and mercy in Christ that we've been reconciled to such a God, may we rejoice.
walking in humble obedience to you, experiencing communion with you freshly day after day, trying to walk those steps and walking them dependently, crying out for grace and having experience and then experiencing the blessing of just simply walking in obedience to you and and having the privilege to honor and glorify you. May we just testify with sincerity and genuineness, oh, how good you are. Father, bless those feeble efforts that we make at praising you publicly and draw, draw people in. Our voices are not enough. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. You are worthy, Father. Swell the choir. Swell the chorus. For the name of Christ, we ask this. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.